You're listening to a podcast from Grace Church in Salado, Texas. For more information and resources just like this, visit us online at gracesalado.com. It is good to be with you this morning. It's good to worship with you. Uh, It's good to be jumping into Luke chapter 10 today. Uh, If you've been with us for a while, we've been going through Luke uh, nice and slowly. Uh, So just kind of catch you up on where we've been, where we're going today. Uh, You can look back to Luke chapter 8 verse 1. Uh, And in that passage, Jesus goes out into the towns and the villages to proclaim the kingdom. Uh, And then you jump forward to Luke chapter 9, verse 1, and Jesus sends out the 12 into the villages so that they would proclaim the kingdom. Uh, And then you keep moving down chapter 9 and verse 52, Jesus sends out messengers into Samaria uh, with the message of the kingdom. Uh, A few verses later in verse 60, Jesus is traveling and uh, he stopped by a man who just lost his father and Jesus ends up sending him out to proclaim the kingdom. And then that brings us to today's verse uh, in chapter 10, verse 1, uh, where the first words begin with Jesus gathering 72 people. And then he's going to send them out into the villages to proclaim this message of the kingdom. So it's easy to predict where we're going this morning. Uh, We're going to be true to the text and looking at at Jesus sending them out. And I just kind of want to let you know right away what my prayer is, what my hope is for this morning. And I am praying that God grips our hearts and our minds and our passions with this vision of God's glory getting spread to every square inch of the planet. That is my prayer this morning, that we would just come away captivated by Jesus and his kingdom and this kind of burning eagerness to participate in this work of advancing the kingdom. So that's where we're going this morning, and it kind of made me think of earlier in the week, uh, I, it was that day where we had kind of the winter freeze come in really briefly, and I was taking my kids to school that morning, and so we go out to my truck, and the window uh, is frozen over, and so we're in a hurry, we're running late, and I kind of just scrape a little hole uh, on the front of the ice, and we jump in, and I turn the defroster on, and so when we take off out of my driveway, I'm not proud of this, I'm just telling you what happened, uh, I'm just like peering through this one little hole in the, in the glass, and I cannot see just a whole lot. And so as the defroster starts to do its job, right, I start to make it out of the neighborhood. And by this point, I now see that there's another lane on the road, right? And as I go a little bit farther, getting near 35 at this point, it starts to expand. And I can kind of see what's on either side of the road. And by the time I finally made it to the school, the ice had melted off and I could see the whole picture. And what I'm praying this morning is that scripture does for our hearts what that defroster did to my windshield, where it just melts away whatever is in the way and we just have this crystal clear vision of God's heart for the nations and so that's my prayer Uh, here in chapter 10 what we're going to see is that it reflects chapter 9 really really closely so you're going to see Jesus gather the 72 together Uh, he's going to commission them to go out Uh, he is going to send them to proclaim the same message uh, that the 12 did that he did in chapter 8 of the kingdom He's going to command them not to bring anything with them so that they would have this sense of urgency about them, so they would have this dependency on God as they went. Uh, And then he's going to warn them how they're supposed to respond to rejection. Uh, And then we get to see them return with joy. So it's really similar similar dynamic-wise to what's happening in chapter 9. So since we talked on a lot of those dynamics a few weeks ago, what I want to do today is kind of pull out the microscope and lock in uh, specifically on verse 2 because it's kind of the crux of what's happening in this text. So you can look at it with me. It'll be on the screens. 
Starting off chapter 10, verse 1, it says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And then Jesus gives them this message, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So when we break this down, there's really three things going on here. They're going to kind of guide what we're looking at today. You've got this harvest, and then you've got the harvesters, and you have the task that they've been given. Uh, So let's jump in, just kind of zooming in on verse 2 here. It says, He said to them, the harvest is plentiful. He says, the harvest is plentiful. So as I was thinking about that this week, I have a feeling, and I could be wrong, but 2,000 years after Jesus came, um, I think it's a hard concept for us to wrap our minds around that this harvest is so plentiful. Uh, When Jesus said this, there was this really extreme, compelling urgency to what he was saying, right? The king himself is standing there telling them, go out to these villages and announce my kingdom to them. So there's, there's this really gripping urgency which I think that they felt. And then when I reflect on our situation right now today, um, I think it's hard to relate to that urgency that they felt uh, for a few reasons. I mean, I think a lot of the people that we interact with on a daily basis, for the most part, have a familiarity with Christianity already, right? And I think on our day-to-day basis, we probably don't encounter a lot of people who are just truly uh, wrestling with suffering, deep suffering, I think that when you look at the culture at large, it's mostly indifferent or maybe even hostile to the message of Christianity. And then when I think you look at God's people, I think you see a lot of people that are just tired and busy and distracted and maybe worn down a little bit. And so I think it's hard to live a life where we are just zealously, intentionally recognizing the harvest that's out there. Uh, I think the busyness of our daily lives is kind of like this clanging gong, like these symbols that are clashing. It just kind of drowns out the reality of the harvest that it's talking about here in, in chapter 10, verse 2. But Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful. So what I want to do is I want to just help give us some perspective of this harvest that's easy for us to kind of numb ourselves to uh, just through our daily life. And it's a little bit sobering, a little bit intense, a little bit overwhelming, but I think it's important that we have a sober view of what the reality is right now. So in the world, you've got about 8 billion people uh, alive right now, today. 3.2 billion of those people are completely unreached. So 42% of the world, so 4 out of every 10 people on the planet are completely unreached with the gospel. That means they've never even heard the good news uh, of Jesus before. And, and I want to be clear when I use this word unreached, uh, it's not synonymous with non-Christian. Uh, that number is much, much higher. Uh, but this term unreached is actually a very specific term that Christian researchers use for when a people group has less than 2% of their population with an evangelical witness. So statistically, that means that these individuals will uh, be born, live, and die without ever hearing the name of Jesus in their lifetime. Uh, So that's what we're talking about when it's unreached. Uh, And so I want to be clear, these people are not actively, intentionally rejecting the gospel. They do not know that it exists, right? They're not saying, I know this Jesus and I don't accept him. They're, They're literally saying, I don't, they don't even have a clue 
who this is or what this message of the kingdom is. And so the harvest is plentiful. There are 1,636 people groups right now that don't have a single bit of scripture in their language. Right? Some of you might not even know there were that many languages on the planet, right? But 1,636 have no scripture in their language whatsoever. Right? There are 3.2 billion people that have no idea what the wages of their sin are. And they have no clue that there is a reckoning coming when they die. That's, that's the reality. They, they have no idea that they were born into the kingdom of darkness or living their entire lives there without any understanding that another kingdom even exists. And so no one's told them that they have access to eternal life, eternal hope, eternal joy. They have no idea that there is an answer and a freedom from their shame, from their addiction, from their hopelessness, from their suffering, for their longing for purpose. Just completely oblivious to that. And so the harvest, I want us to recognize, is not just plentiful. It is overwhelming. It's bursting at the seams. What Jesus said 2,000 years ago is absolutely true today. And I can remember when the full weight of this harvest kind of crashed down on me. I almost had these snapshots in my life where these numbers became real. I can think back to uh, when we were living in Turkey, and we were in a town of about 20,000 people, and they were celebrating the Ramadan sacrifice. So each year they come out, they get an animal to sacrifice uh, as a way to try and atone for their sins. And I remember walking out of my apartment that day, and I, I remember the sounds of dozens of animals being slaughtered a hundred meters away. I mean, I, I remember walking out there. I remember the heat in, in, the, in May. I remember just sweating. I remember turning the corner and seeing the mosque just towering over the city. I remember the sound of the call to prayer just echoing out over the city. I, I remember looking over into the marketplace and watching a grandfather and a child about the same age as my daughter smiling ear to ear holding a butcher knife in their hands. And I remember seeing this, this group of people that were our friends and our neighbors gathered as blood literally drips into the streets around them. That harvest became real to me in that moment. It wasn't a number. And I can think back to a couple of months ago when we were in the Netherlands. Completely different environment. But we were talking to this, this person who had tried to read the Bible with some, with some uh, students like 9 or 10 years old. And there was one of them that was reading scripture in the Psalms. And they kept saying God. And the, and the child looked up at, at this individual and said, this isn't a very common name around here. I don't know if I've ever met anybody named God before. Is that, is that a common name? didn't even have a concept of deity. I remember the very next day I was talking with this uh, kid who was maybe 16, 17 years old, and we're getting in a conversation, and the topic of Jesus comes up, and he says, yeah, I think that guy moved some kind of a rock on Christmas morning or something like that. No clue what the gospel was. I can remember times when I was in Guatemala or Romania uh, or, or a number of different areas, Somaliland, 
where there was such a degree of poverty that I cannot imagine how someone in that situation even has the capacity to process their spiritual reality. Just so overwhelmed, like just trying to make it to the next day. And so I say all that because I have seen the harvest. I've heard it and I have smelled it. I have watched it and it is it is plentiful and it is there. And so in case there's any part of you that kind of pushes back whenever we see that, that this was the case in Jesus' time but not today, I can tell you the harvest is there and it's plentiful. 3.2 billion people. And so I was looking at the statistics in the next 24 hours, that means 63,000 people will die without ever even encountering another Christian. 63,000. The harvest is plentiful. There are 818 people groups which have never even been targeted by missions organizations. Like the need is so great out of all the hundreds and hundreds of missions organizations out there, almost 900 of them have never even had an agency say, we're going to try and get somebody out there. And I don't know about you, but when I, when I try and wrap my mind around these numbers, I, just, I get paralyzed by the magnitude of it. Just the gospel being completely unknown, unheralded, untranslated. I mean, th- this, was, this is like crippling to me. I'm not a big crier, but I, I weep over these numbers. I, I, I cried in my office Monday morning when I was trying to get these onto paper. And just not even able to finish typing out the words, just when the reality of this sets in, the harvest is plentiful. And so the second part of verse 2 really gets worse before it gets better. He says, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And, and it made me think about how we, we moved houses recently and for some ridiculous reason, I got this idea in my head that I should try and do the majority of it myself. Uh, and to make things worse, I, the first day that I started to work, I was like ripping down our shed. I got hit by the roof and I got a concussion. And so I'm like dizzy and nauseous and the room is spinning and I'm trying to move this furniture. And I know you're looking at me thinking, David is a huge guy. I bet that guy can throw around some furniture. I'll tell you, you would be wrong. Uh, that is not the case, right? I'm trying to move these couches, right? And my like weak little knees are shaking, and I'm like, I need help. And so I did what any reasonable person would do. I called every friend that I had with good knees and a good back, and I called all of our college students, and I begged them and cried for help and bribed them with pizza. And something struck me when I was thinking about that, that when the laborers are few, the task is overwhelming. That when the laborers are few, the task is overwhelming. John 4 says that the harvest is not just plentiful. It says that it's ripe for gathering. The problem is there's just no one there to gather it. And so I've said this probably a thousand times, and I'll say it a thousand times more, because I think it's that important for us to understand. Every believer has a role to play in finishing the Great Commission. Every single believer has a role to play in finishing 
the Great Commission. There are no spectators in God's kingdom. That language is never used of a, of a believer as a bystander, one that comes and watches. There aren't spectators in God's kingdom. The church has been given the mission of bringing Christ to the world and the world to Christ. And so I think the unfortunate reality is that 2,000 years later, the same thing that Jesus saw is true today, that the laborers are few. And I I think we might wrestle with that because there's a lot of people that might show up on a Sunday morning. There's a lot of people that are involved with Bible studies. There's a lot of people that would call themselves Christians. But I think that if we honestly looked, we would see that there was a very few number that are trying to seek and to save the lost. I think that's the reality that we would be confronted with, that go out and seek people for the sake of the gospel. And so I want to pause here and say something very, very intentionally, because I think it's important. Uh, There is a tendency when we look at this, when we look at this this plentiful harvest, and then we look at the the shortage of laborers, there's going to be a tendency to kind of turn inwards and start looking at ourselves. And we start to feel guilt, we start to feel shame, we just feel bad about ourselves, and we think, I need to do more, be more, perform more, achieve more. And that is the voice of Satan when it's just trying to turn you inwards and focus on yourself. The goal is that you would not leave this morning feeling guilty. Right? The goal is for us to be transformed, that we would look outwards and see Christ so beautifully enthroned on high that we would be propelled into the world to share the good news about him. That's the idea, right? I want us to understand that the motivation for missions, it is not guilt, it is not shame, it is not pity for the lost. The motivation for missions is this burning desire for King Jesus to be getting the glory that he deserves. That's what should propel us out into the harvest. And I think we understand this because we are hardwired to proclaim and celebrate the things that we love. Right? This week, the Rangers won the World Series. You didn't have to twist the arms of any Rangers fans to get them to celebrate that. Right? You didn't have to say, hey, could you all just blow up every social media account that I have with posts about the Texas Rangers? No, they were coming out of the woodworks. Right, They were just celebrating and besides themselves, they were carving out time in their week to watch the game. They were talking about it. Right, If they had a big foam finger with the number one on it and a Rangers logo, they'd wave it in your face. You didn't have to force them to do that. We were hardwired to love and celebrate and proclaim those things that we love. And so I want us, as God's people, to be so overwhelmed with passion and zeal and love for God and for his kingdom that we are propelled to go out into the world and proclaim him to all nations. That's the goal. That our hearts would break when Jesus is unknown. That we would be uh, in whenever he is blasphemed, and that we'd be distraught whenever Christ is ignored. And I just, I long for the day when all of us together would say nothing on this earth compares to the surpassing glory and worth of knowing Christ Jesus. That's a day that I long for for us. 
And so it moves in to the task. What do we do with that information? Okay, you've got this plentiful harvest. You've got a shortage of laborers. So what does Jesus tell them to do here? For me, it was surprising. It's not what I would have expected Jesus to say. If you look at it with me, it says, And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, if I'm just being completely honest, I kind of wish he would have just said, therefore, go. Uh, It would have made things a lot easier. Therefore, look at this need, now go. He says that in Matthew 28. He doesn't choose to say it here. He says, therefore, pray earnestly. Therefore, pray earnestly. And so the question is, why? Why is that the action step that Jesus moves to when he's trying to mobilize these people And it's because a movement of missions must begin with a movement of prayer. A movement of missions must begin with a movement of prayer, right? God has willed that his miraculous work of evangelization throughout the world be preceded by great prayer. And so a movement of missions must begin with a movement of prayer first. And you can... See something going on here really interesting in verse 2. Notice that it doesn't just say, pray to God. Who does it say to pray to? You can see it up on the screen. He said, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. Why is he using that language? Well, that's because the farmer tills the land, right? And the farmer plants the seed. The farmer waters it. The farmer labors. The farmer toils, but only the Lord of the harvest is able to make a crop grow up out of the ground. That is not the work of the farmer. That is the work of the Lord of the harvest. So he says the, re- the action step here is not to go out and be a great farmer. The action step is to call out to the Lord of the harvest to do what only the Lord of the harvest can do. He says, when you go out and just try and perform, you're going to be limited by whatever resources and talents and abilities you have. But when you pray to the Lord of the harvest, you access all of the power that comes with that. And so a movement of missions must begin with a movement of prayer. And I want us to understand that without prayer... Right? We, can, we can raise more interest in missions. We could raise some money for missionaries. Right? We could have more participation in our mission trips. But we would not begin to scratch the surface of the kingdom impact that we could make if there was genuine, faithful, passionate, crying out to the Lord of the harvest to do what we ourselves cannot do. We wouldn't scratch the surface of our kingdom impact. And I think when we look at Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, it adds a whole other dimension to this. It's a well-known passage uh, where Paul is basically making this plea for people to be able to go. But we're going to notice Luke actually adds another layer to it. So look at it with me, Romans 10, 14. He says, this is Paul, How then can they call on the one that they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? 
And so Luke 10.2 adds a dynamic to this, which says, how can they be sent unless people are praying for them to be sent? There's an even more foundational layer to it. And we experienced this. My wife and I did. I, I remember in early marriage, uh, we, we were sitting exactly where you are, just a different room, listening to someone. They, they vaguely referenced missions. And I remember driving home and talking with my wife and thinking, babe, I don't think we've ever actually stopped and prayed whether that was something that God would have for us. And so we just kind of said, well, that seems like something we should be praying for. So we just decided every day for a month or two, we would just pray and just say, God, what would you have us to do? If you want us to go, we'll go. If you want us to stay, we'll stay. And it really, it, it probably only took a few weeks before God started to break down walls and rip apart our plans and change our passions. And that was actually the catalyst to send us overseas. Was that month or two months of prayer? That was, that was all that really happened to go from A to B was that prayer took place. And I want you to hear that it does not matter who you are. There's no one that's disqualified from this access to the Father through prayer, right? You can be the youngest believer with the weakest theology and the most insecurity about sharing your faith, but you have the same exact impact on the kingdom as any missionary. I would argue a greater impact than any missionary because, because the power of prayer has been given to every Christian in equal proportion, right? The power of prayer has been given to every single Christian in equal proportion. And, and I think the reality is we, we have a million reasons uh, and ways and excuses that we kind of disqualify ourselves of why we shouldn't or couldn't go to the nations. But this call to pray is not something that any of us has the ability to excuse ourselves from. Right? Intercessory prayer, I would argue, is the single greatest contribution that any follower of Jesus can make towards reaching the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. I would say it's the single greatest contribution that any believer can make towards reaching the world with the gospel, right? And we're reminded of this when we look at the book of Acts, right? We're familiar with these texts in the book of Acts where 3,000 come to faith, 5,000 Build a practice as you read the book of Acts. And every single time you see one of these miraculous additions to the group of believers, put your finger on the page and start tracing upwards and you will find a body of Christians coming together in prayer. Right? You can look at Acts chapter 1, verse 14. It says, they all join together constantly in prayer. And then chapter 2, verse 41 says about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Then you keep going, the very next verse, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Five verses later, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts 2, 47, uh, oh, no, Acts 3, verse 1, Peter and John go to the temple to pray. They end up healing a man, proclaiming the gospel to him. And then it says, the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. 
20 verses later, Peter and John are imprisoned, then they're released, and it says that they raise their voices together in prayer to God. And then in chapter 5, verse 14, it says, More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. There's a missiologist named John Stott that said the missionary church is a praying church. And my hope is that that would be true for us, right? Because what this means is that the single clearest sign that we as a church, the people in this room, we get to experience the harvest that Scripture is talking about. The greatest sign that that is going to happen is if there is a widespread movement of prayer that comes about. That is a clear sign that we will get to see this harvest. Right? If after today, there is zero increase in prayer from where we are today, I have no expectation that 2024 will be the year that we get to see that happen. I have no expectation of that if prayer does not increase. And I want to be specific here because the text is specific Uh, All prayer, we know, is important and powerful. This is a very specific kind of prayer that he's referring to. Look at what it says. It says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So the Greek word that's used here for send out is ekbalo. And so it's this phrase, it's really a pretty intense phrase. It means to, to cast out uh, or to throw out, kind of violently eject something. Uh, It's not kind of a gentle nudging. It's the same word they use for casting out demons, if that kind of gives you a picture of of how this term tends to be used. And it's a disruptive call. And I have been praying, and will continue to pray, that God would ekbalo some of us in this very room, that we would just be launched out of our daily circumstances into this harvest for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. I pray that this word ekbalo would start to take hold in here. I pray right now that there are people that feel this ekbalo, this just sending out, this casting out. Like, I don't want to do anything else with my life. What else am I going to do? This is what I want for my life. That just disruptively launched out into the harvest from here. And if I can be completely honest and frank with you, I want to say this lovingly, but I also want us to recognize the truth in it. I believe that Satan and all of hell with him rejoices when there are millions of faithful brothers and sisters who are content to go on about their life, busying themselves and distracting ourselves with temporal things, where there are billions of people, while the gospel remains unheralded among billions of people, who have never heard of it and statistically never will hear of it. Who will live and die without ever hearing the name of of Jesus. I I think that Satan is very content about that situation. And so I'm, I'm praying that we would wake up. That there would be this spiritual awakening to what this text is saying. And so what I want to do is I want to be obedient to what this text is telling us to pray about this. And so I want to pause right now just in the middle of the sermon and pray for exactly what Jesus is telling us to pray for. So join me as as we pray for the harvest. 
God, it is so hard to wrap my mind around the breadth of this harvest. God, it's just so overwhelming to try and understand it. Thank you, Lord, that you are in the control room of the universe. All things are in your hands. God, I I pray that you would do something that we cannot even ask or imagine. That you would begin right now raising up laborers to go into the harvest. I pray that as a church, we would be characterized by our faithful prayer that a year from now, that there would be this swelling of prayer among our people. God, and I beg you to send out heralds of the gospel to those that have never heard it before. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Um, if, you're, if you're hearing this, this kind of call to prayer and you're thinking, I would love to be praying for the nations, I just I genuinely don't know where to start. I don't know how to go about that. Uh, we put together a resource for you, which you might find helpful. Uh, it's obviously free. Uh, you can grab one in the Connect booth in the back of the room or in the foyer as you leave. Uh, but it's, it's just kind of a guide of scriptures that will walk you through praying for the nations. And I would really encourage you um, to just use that. It's kind of a tangible catalyst in your prayer life. Um, so feel free to grab one of those when you leave today. But I want to I wanna return to the text here in verse 17 and kind of this final piece of the chapter. In verse 17, it says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So what's going on here? Right, The disciples return. They're rejoicing. They're almost like giddy. Can you believe what we can do? The same reaction I would have if I saw and experienced the same things that they just experienced as they're traveling throughout the, the villages of seeing uh, this, this miraculous power of God healing and, and casting out demons. And then Jesus says this kind of disorienting, confusing statement in verse 18. He says that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So what's going on here? Well, if you go all the way back up to verse 9 and 11, when Jesus is sending them out, it says that he was giving them a very specific message that they were supposed to be proclaiming. This this gospel of the kingdom, this message of the kingdom. And so what Jesus is telling him here is that as they're casting out demons, it's not just some magic trick. He's saying that this is evidence of the authority that God's kingdom has come. That God's kingdom is here, right? They're witnessing what is said in Matthew 11, that the blind will receive sight, the lame are going to be walking, lepers are cleansed, the deaf are going to hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. The kingdom is here, right? And in saying this, he's really pointing towards Revelation 12, verse 9. We'll put it up on the screen for you. But it says this, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in in heaven saying, now 
the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they've conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. And then look what it finishes with in verse 12. He says, therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. This is why Jesus is somewhat rebuking them for the way they're rejoicing. Because he says, you're rejoicing in this power and this authority over demons, but you can cast out demons and still be excluded from the kingdom of God. That's Jesus' rebuke. If you look at Matthew 7, verses 22 through 23, he says, on that day, this is Jesus, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That passage can be pretty terrifying if you don't understand what Jesus is getting at. He's saying you can have all of the power and all the authority and all the success. You can do miracles in his name, but you can still miss the kingdom of God. So he says, rejoice that your names are written in the book of heaven, right? Because the joy that they were experiencing was fleeting, right? It was exciting whenever they're watching demons get cast out. But what happened in chapter nine at the foot of the mountain whenever they couldn't cast out the demon anymore? Joy was gone. There was terror in that moment. There was confusion and panic. There was not joy when Jesus had to step in and save the day, right? So Jesus says that there's this deeper, richer abiding joy that they have access to. He says, rejoice that you can claim citizenship in the new Jerusalem. Right? Rejoice that you can be called a child of God. Rejoice that while you were still in active rebellion to the king of the universe, he chose to send his son to pay the price that you deserved and give you access not just into the kingdom, but as, as children of the living king. He said, this is what should cause us to rejoice. And my hope and my prayer is that we are so captivated, so in awe, and we're so overwhelmed with joy that we get to be a part of this kingdom, that we drop to our knees and that we beg our God to send messengers into the harvest to herald this message of the kingdom so that every tongue and tribe and nation has access to the same joy that you and I have access to, that they can rejoice and the nations would rejoice in the same way we have the opportunity to rejoice as God's people, as God's children. Pray with me. God, you are a good God. It's just overwhelming to think about the harvest and how we play a role in that.
God, I'm so grateful that you are the king, and I'm not. God, I'm so grateful that before you created the world, you had a plan in place to redeem people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That we have this picture in Revelation of the multitudes standing before the throne, saying, holy, holy, holy. And for some reason, you gave us the opportunity to be a part in bringing that to fruition. That we have the opportunity to join you in this work of restoring shalom on the earth like you intended it. Inviting people into your kingdom to join us arm in arm. God, I beg you, do not let anyone in this room walk out of here overwhelmed by guilt. But let us walk out overwhelmed with the glory of Jesus. Which is this burning, this longing, this yearning to make his name known. Let us be a people that pray. Thank you that you are the Lord of the harvest. We pray this in the beautiful, powerful name of Jesus.